Hello all, hope you're all staying safe out there. Um, some of you might know that I work for the NHS, so I have been kind of working constantly through this um, crisis. But I've also been thinking about what kind of content um, I could produce. Um, I don't like producing mass content like some people do brag about, oh, here's the 180th podcast of the week, you know, this kind of nonsense, or blogging for the sake of blogging when somebody tweets, you know, what they had for breakfast, that's not a story. Anyway, um, I had a think, and I kind of was, got an idea that what I could do is three commentary tracks for uh, the three documentaries that I did, so um, what I'll do is I'll... um, record one, you know, every few days when I can, because obviously I'm working a lot as well, Um, and then you can kind of watch them, the point of them is to watch the films at the same time, and so you maybe get a wee bit of insight, if I can remember, (laughs) Um, and uh, the point is, as I say, is to, 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 you know, maybe find out a few things on my memory, I'll get jogged by a few things and stuff like that. Um, and hopefully you'll you'll get um, insight. I mean, I think personally one of the reasons as well that um, I don't think anything's going to be the same after this. I don't think, um, especially football. I think football's just been kind of um, dithering along, pretending that this isn't real, and um, you know this kind of notion that oh we'll get everything finished by the end of June and all this kind of nonsense. It's like not a chance in hell and I really think that clubs are uh, will go bust and also my look will never be the same again after this um, and the sooner they realise that it's not business as usual um, the better now um, the first film I'm going to do is the asterisk years which was based on a book that I did in 2013 and it was always my intention to try and get some sort of documentary together from this book just to try and reach a wider audience because at that time Kindle was king Um, and so at that point I I didn't have for the Assassin's own Kindle or anything like that and was kind of mistakenly thinking that very few people would buy the book, so they would need to get in. Mean, in actual fact, you know, it was the biggest selling book I've ever done by absolute miles. So, um, I'm kind of propelled everything that I did for five, six years after it. Um, the the key point of the assets years was getting um, Ja Jussa involved, so he could bring a level of professionalism. Um, to it on a, on a meagre budget and when I say a meagre budget I mean if we, this was basically all done for about five grand and if you were to say anybody now you know um, you know give five grand to make this documentary they'd probably say yeah, what am I getting for the second hour you know it's just such a meagre budget and this is going to be a crucial time for independent filmmakers because um, we were actually gearing up to make another film, a uh, documentary about the pardon. So, who knows if that's going to happen or not? I don't know. But the problem that I foresee is that a, of course, people are going to be struggling for financially to, to invest in an independent film. 
in these studios I think are just going to go for tried and tested um, stuff which will even close the, the, the door to independent filmmakers even more so it's you know fortunate we actually managed to get three documentaries in and um, I'll go into detail with all of them but um, what to do is there will be links and stuff to my YouTube channel with the Ashes Years and please watch it on my YouTube channel you know it's People still don't understand that you know how hurtful it is when your content just basically gets stolen. And I'm speaking to someone who's never illegally downloaded a thing in my life because I believe in the artists' um, right to earn money for them, basically. You know, because without that, there won't be stuff at all. And now we're really going to see that. So uh, the links will be there for the YouTube channel. Set it up. Get ready to start watching and. Um, I'll start talking as I am watching so you'll hear the film in the background and you'll hear me talking about various things so I hope you enjoy and get ready now Okay, here we are I'm about to start the so if you get ready to start your asterisk years film hopefully on the front of the bus channel on YouTube, remember um, here we go So straight away you're getting a Charles Bukowski quote, which was I was looking for something that was um, something that about you know uh, how you can survive anything basically. And initially we had kind of went with a Rocky theme until Sylvester Stallone's lawyer sent us a cease and desist letter. That's true, absolutely true. Then we were looking for some comparisons here between Celtic and Rangers at the time um, and obviously Billy lifting the European Cup was the most iconic moment then it was important to try and explain the meaning of the word asterisk and nothing better than Barry Bonds um, who was a famous baseball player in America tried to put a wee package Jad done a great job of putting a wee package together footage that we could get um, to explain what had happened. Hence the asterisk years and of course the book had a Football um, with an asterisk uh, carved into it, basically. Uh, and that took us into the film. I mean, obviously, you're watching the film, you didn't need to hear it here, so. Here's my ugly mug. Um, showing a few books. I hate that smile I did there, it's crap. Ja felt that this bit was important to kind of establish my credentials, if I have any, I suppose, because um, obviously nobody knew me at this time at all. So, this footage we got of a guy um, with the league championship winning game at Ibrox when we drew 2 all in 1967, um, just to show essentially what football was like, um, you know, back in the day where. 
you know, before David Murray basically came in and ruined Scottish football, um, we we financially doping it. And then we emphasised this, of course, we the spread of the league titles in Scotland in 12 years before Murray arrived and soonest of course the beast very much bunking up the Darth Vader theme here of course <coughs> with his lapdog Jim White beside him and if you'll notice here we've got Don't Buy The Sun instead of the Sun headline because obviously Don't Buy The Sun Zavrish Joe Muller, who was really, really half cut when he'd done this, uh, which was at the top of Carlton Hill in Edinburgh. Scottish Cup final, where in excess, you'll notice there's a theme, some of the music, most of the music in this is that all the artists are no longer worse. Which means cheaper. Centenary year, you know, magical season for anybody that was around. Um, every goal seemed to be in the last minute, every win seemed to be dramatic. Used to come out in tears almost every week, especially towards the end of the season, winning at Ibrox, winning the semi final against Hearts, Cup final against United. Um, and it was always hammed in the sun, you know. I thought that was a good parallel piece about in terms of what was about to happen. David Murray comes in, the real villain, who to this day, you know, a lot of journalists and self-confessed Huns are still in denial about the fact that it was him that absolutely ruined um, both Rangers and Scottish football. Um, you know, you hear your chick youngs and all that and they'll come on and they'll be like, oh, you know, the villains of the piece like Craig White and Charles Green and Mike Ashley. And you're like, uh, David Murray spent a billion pound of taxpayers' money that was never paid back that led to liquidation. You know, so how anybody, and it always interests me to think that Craig White, um, always portrayed as a villain of the piece, is is the only one of them barred for Scottish football. You're the only one that got not guilty in court. This was David Murray pre-accident playing rugby and then post-accident playing snooker. With a couple of other things about David Murray and that that we took out, maybe cheap shots regarding uh, his son and his girlfriend's ability to swallow a banana whole, which we thought was a bit tabloid-esque at the time, but I'm happy to share with you now. Yeah, I mean, these were dark, dark times for Celtic, obviously. Um, I suppose most, most of you have lived through that. Um... Fergus, Matt McGlone there sticking in the back. Yeah, 
And what Joe says is, is right. We were six million pounds in debt, seven million pounds in debt to the Bank of Scotland or whatever. Um, Rangers were in thirty million pounds of debt. There's me and my bonnet. <coughs> Something which not a lot of people picked up on the fact that I was wearing a bonnet deliberately. I mean, this was a something that happened at the time, you know, all these half-wits that are prancing about like Gaza and Loudrop and all that. Nobody ever asked, how would you afford that? You know? Everybody just assumed that David Murray was just bankrolling it, but of course, the reality was he wasn't. Absolutely true. Stefan Kloss is the highest-paid player in Europe when Zidane scored that goal at um, Hamden. And Maloney just stuck one past Kloss. Yeah, the email. Um, this was obviously someone who was um, close to MIH and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, sent, sent me an email that was a wee bit, because I got a lot of, of um, contact at the time for people and that, and then, you know, you kind of brushed a lot off and stuff like that. So, um, it was a really clandestine kind of thing really um, but we'll come on to that later I mean there's a list of the creditors um, which was incredible I mean never gets talked about never gets talked about the fact that none of that was ever paid back you know most of it or not most of it a lot of it was to you know people within um, Scottish football you know, you look at one there's Dunfermline Athletic, 83,000. I mean, do you honestly think Dunfermline can just afford to write off 83,000 pound? You know, but again, this was about Rangers being Scottish. Scotland's an establishment club. Nothing was ever challenged. You know, um, they were going to have the floating stadiums and, you know, the casinos and all this kind of nonsense. And they were going to sign Ronaldo and... Blah, 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 you know, and, um, you know, we just had to put up with that because at that time, we really never had a voice and I think nothing's changed in Scotland. I mean, I'd like to think that the narrative towards David Murray's changed a bit in the terms that he doesn't appear, you know, anymore, spouting his nonsense. But the what's changed is the ability to expose the nonsense. That's the key point, you know. It's like when um, people started to think that suddenly the American police force had parts of it that was racist, that wasn't just something that sprung up, it was just the ability to expose that. And that's kind of the era that we were living in then, as this was starting. And this is obviously Charlotte Square, and because a lot of this story is in Edinburgh, which was obviously where I was born and bred. And um, John Lennon burst through working class hero, which is exactly the kind of thing we're talking about here. And a lot of this stuff um, was filmed over the course of the same week, basically. Um, this was obviously, the video now is obviously a, a promo for um, Fetty's College, which was probably about 10 minutes from where I lived, in Muir House, <coughs> um, growing up stuff. Although I'm a million miles away in terms of opportunity and, and things like that. 
But this was something that Bob, the the um, the first main source, there was three main sources in total, um, tried to explain to me about how private schools really work. And it was pretty um, eye-opening. Bravelston Dykes in Edinburgh, which is uh, another one of these areas. You know, this was all filmed over the same week. Whenever they seen they're not from the offices of the Daily Record as well. So put all the time you keep saying the press do not have enough power to do this. It's as simple as that. Essex Road right now in Barton. David Murray Wallace Mercer both stayed there. I pass it quite a lot. There's Murrayfield and that's Murrayfield Golf Club there. This was the kind of place where even Scottish international rugby players could they just jump the queue. This is an interesting bit coming up um, in terms of the audience reaction. I swear every audience that I took this film to around the world thought I was telling Morris Johnson to fuck off there, but I wasn't. I was explaining that the golf club did. Um, again, all this footage was filmed. It was like, uh, I'm trying to think, when did the film come out? November 2014. This would have been about uh, Easter 2014. All this stuff was filmed. Um, one of the windiest weeks ever, as I remember. And this was key information about where all the judges, I mean, these people were, you know, living and socialising all within the same postcode, uh, which is incredible, really. This road here, the car, you see the car going up the road. If you were to keep following that car and take a left, that's where David Murray was staying at the time, Easter Belmont. And of course, Lord Number Smith, who oversaw the whitewash of the cheating, um, was his neighbour. You know, it's incredible. A lot of these schools are men only, or sorry, boys only, girls only, but they socialise all the time to, so that they A, to get rid of that, and B, obviously only mixed with their own. That's the key point. The new club in Edinburgh um, was in Princess Street, which um, a lot of people in Edinburgh lived all their life and never had a clue where it was, because it was a very secretive place. Um, and one of the things as well is that the large cache arms in Scotland is within Murrayfield as well. Um, so supposedly for the TAs and stuff like that, but in reality, in case all you good folks get up one day and revolt. See, Fetties again, Tony Blair went to there. Um, I went to a school just down the road, a community school, which was... 
a kind of socialist collective based on the practice of non-religious education, which is why you probably never hear me mention religion because it's never really been a part of my life um, and never will. Um, I love Murray how he's got three different phones here and three different coloured phones. Um, and again, like when all these times were happening, uh, when Murray was in charge, it was just never questioned. Um, even though, you know, somebody like me, there's David Murray Jr., sorry, somebody like me with, you know, limited investigative journalism skills, what he was able to find out through good sources and stuff. Now, the key point here is that all the links between all these places are, are absolutely critical. And there was supposed to be a succession to David Murray Jr., even though um, most people would say that he was never in the class of his father in terms of being able to manipulate and stuff like that. This is key to the overdraft scenario with the Bank of Scotland. Having a stake in Rangers, therefore, having a stake in him doing well, therefore, being um, unlimited. And it, one thing that always hurt me was the role of Gavin Masterton in this was always overplayed. Gavin Masterton was a clever guy and all that kind of thing, and he was well placed in the Bank of Scotland. But and, and ultimately, took orders, you know. It's the same way people used to say, oh, there must be the Masons involved. These people were above the Masons. They didn't need to be in we staff secret societies or whatever to um, manipulate things. They were the, the movers and shakers in Scotland, period. And I have to say, had it no been for the global financial crisis, there probably would have been an independent Scotland, but it would have been run by these fuckers, you know, so... Um, maybe we dodged a bullet there, hopefully. Um, and then there's Angus Grosshart, who was something who was absolutely key to bring to the public knowledge of just how many fingers he had and how many pies. And David Murray's, you know, kind of mentor, stroke, fixer, stroke. The guy who was always there to help him out. Here, of course, we, uh, we did a wee parody of, uh, this is outside Angus Grosshart's office, a wee parody of uh, Bob Dylan. I was wearing a Malcolm X t-shirt there, which the cameraman kind of really, really put in there, the dick. Um, and that was a GAA hat there. Again, just wee symbols, you know, noise them up, whatever. Um, it's a Queen Street in Edinburgh, just the back off, basically. Um, but this was just to <clears throat> amplify um, Angus Grosshart's grip on Scottish society in terms of corporate um, he did the deal for McCune's Lager with Rangers and stuff like that right at the start so just looking at that there I'm positive there was a Celtic clock in the background there but I can't even really see it This was Murray's talent to, to to manipulate and befriend influential people. You know, you can't deny that he was absolutely superb at that. And of course there was a the thing with Stuart Reagan. Stuart Reagan um was a friend of Murray for years before he was involved with Scottish football. 
done the Coors Light deal in America when they did American tours and stuff like that. And, um, you know, so Murray was delighted when he got the job at the SFA. That's important as well. Dave Murray didn't come for Edinburgh, come for Ayrshire. Remember, he tried to buy Air United and knocked him back. Um, but Murray, the, the the driving force behind Murray was ego. You know, he wanted to be the number one man in Scottish football. And for a long time he was. Um, I would say up until Dermot Desmond came in. Um, and then that that was a key thing where Dermot Desmond simply had the bigger power, bigger money, obviously. Christ, I had bigger money than Murray. Um, and bigger influence and could, you know, move in far bigger circles than Murray and that was a big threat. Fergus wasn't like that. Fergus was a self-made guy, done it in Canada, you know, done it in Boston, New York, places like that. But had been out of the Scottish and British thing for a for a long time, so didn't really have that much an influence. Whereas Dermot Desmond could, you know, buy and sell the likes of David Murray a million times over. And this was a key point as well, where Celtic were far far more financially stronger than. Rangers, but Murray was trying to say he was making it as a sound as though, well, you know, they can almost equate with us because I mean, we are far, so far ahead of them, but we can almost equate with nonsense, you know. They were scrambling and scrounging every penny they could get to keep up with us. Um, and obviously the EBT scheme, and the EBT scheme was key, but it was just a facet of the kind of global thinking that they had of right well we've got this unlimited um overdraft we've got this billion pounds of bank support we've got a laptop loyalty in our bidding and here's another facet because i've always said um there's a phrase i used to say this on the tours quite a lot there's a phrase that gets used in new york um queensbridge actually which says there's no such thing as a halfway crook you know, David Murray didn't wake up one day and just go, you know what, I think we'll start cheating. He was always cheating. He was always manipulating. He was always um, looking for ways to essentially um, be at the top of Scottish football. And what reality was that happened was that Celtic got their act together, completely overtook them, which meant they then had to up their financial doping game, which meant the rest of Scottish football was in a false economy and ended up spending more money than they had to try and compete. Never mind keep up, just compete. Um, which then led to, you know, an influx of foreign players coming in, which led to the demise of the Scottish national team, upon which we're still struggling right now. Um, 22 years on from um, qualification in France, 98. And there's Jimmy Calderwood, which was, again, he was supposed to be the next Rangers manager. Um after Advocate and then Betty Dunferman because they got McLeish instead. Um, you can see there the losses and Celtic's losses did go up a bit. Um, but once Peter Loyal came in, they started to kind of um, go down substantially to the point where they started making a profit. Whereas Rangers just kept losing and losing. I mean, look at that money there. It's 70 million, 62 million, 82 million, 110 million. Hundred million. I mean, that's you know, 
and that so that that's what's financial doping. You know, you give anybody that level of an advantage, and they're going to have, um, you know, huge advantage over people. You know, which they claim. I mean, it, as they were said in the EBT case, the whole point of this was to gain a sporting advantage. So. And this was a key point for people like me. You know, I was 20 in 1994 and thought Celtic were a financial shambles, whereas Rangers were, you know, the King Midas type scenario with David Murray. Um, and yet Celtic were in a financially better state. Not great, but still financially better than Rangers. And, you know. But at the time, you know, they tried to push us. The same bank tried to push us. There was bankruptcy where propping them up that's the establishment in Scotland for you that's Charlotte Square in Edinburgh which he no longer has uh, that's all gone that was in the south of France um, as was that uh, in his vineyard down there is his son over his right shoulder this was probably one of the best days of my life <laughs> yours as well I know that And one of the things that always came out, your McCoy's and all that was, why would we put doing? Why would we have to do the third division? Oh, that's kind of very, very simple. You were liquidated. You're a new club. That's what happens. That's exactly it. They, remember that? They tried to kill Celtic, the bike Scotland, and then they bankrolled. Rangers nine in a row. You know, this is before EBTs, although Gaza was the first EBT in 1995. Remember, the case um, inquiry only went to the start of the SPL in 1998, so they never took into consideration people like Gaza, who had um, was paid through an EBT. And there you go, one billion creditors. remember that when people were saying you know we should buy this buy that and that, that's a level of money we were dealing we were up against and there's the bank support 889 million pounds of bank support and there you go Murray Group and Rangers, one and the same. So there's the advantage, clearly. You heard it from the man's own mouth. This was something I really needed to have explained to me at the time. Because um, I'm not a finance guy. I mean, I'm a, the kind of guy that's, um, you know, when I say I'm skint, that means I've not got a penny in my name. If I've got a tenner or a pocket, I'm not skint. 
and this was key where suddenly eyes for London and Lloyd's started looking at Rangers accounts and saying, why on earth does this man owe us so much money? True again, British taxpayers own Rangers. Um, and in, in the minute we, we, these cosy arrangements started to collapse, so did Rangers. This was true, Angus Grossart um, was asked for a kind of please help me type scenario for David Murray but Grossart had bigger fish to fry and said no and that was it and that was the, when the strategy came about of right, I, need, I need to get rid of Rangers, I need to find a patsy to foist this onto before it was... Um, before you know the shit hit the fan basically and uh, Murray just could not be holding the ball when uh, administration and liquidation would come um, enter Craig White and Craig White was a patsy who you know I know he's wrote a book and I've not read the book because I mean I've know everything about the guy um, I've seen so much stuff about him behind the scenes and whatever that um, Craig White knew that he if he got his hands on Rangers, he could, just before the the trigger was pulled, he could make his sell a right few quid legally, although morally um, bankrupt. Um, and that photograph there was something that um, was really clean all that. Same with these emails. David Fraser was David Murray's uh, alias. Um and this is the thing where he was complaining, oh, I would never even met Craig White and all that kind of thing, so wanted to blow that away. And also the fact that he was invited to David Murray's honeymoon, because obviously it was in Monaco and so was Craig White and back and forth and all that kind of thing. So be under no illusions that Craig White was set up for the get-go as, as the patsy. He was the, the Lee Harvey Oswald in this story, there's no doubt about it at all. Although he was sure rude enough to cover his aim back and make you sell a right few quid in the meantime, um, and he was at that time, Craig White was doing things like he had an account with um, uh, Fly B um, and so on. He was Sugar Daddy Clubs and all this nonsense, you know. And this bit, whereas Murray was the reason why he got the ticket to steal because he told tickets that Murray was still going to be part of the club and that's why tickets have agreed to be, give him the money which um, for five year season tickets. Campbell Ogilvy, uh, Joe is about to bring the house down as he did it every tour. Um, this was the moment where the, the, the audience had built up tension, tension, tension with the audience. And then um, when you get that build up of tension, you can get a huge release um, from a crowd. Basically, they've been drinking as every crowd in the tour did um, was fully drunk, basically. And um, that was always a, ch a challenge, but you would find that the rougher pubs, if you like, were the better ones, and the ones that took themselves too seriously sometimes just wanted to have an argument, all right. So, um, but obviously, this was just establishing how involved Campbell Ogilvy was with the EBT scheme. 
<laughs> Joe, as I say, broke the hoosting with that line, which was fantastic. I would always, any documentary, I would try and fit Joe in because he's just brilliant at what he does and what he says, and he knows how to hit the killer lines, you know. And this, of course, was a five way agreement, which, you know, we're still the tentacles of which still loom over Scottish football. And um, the question, sort of now, is especially in terms of Resolution 12, when did Peter Lowell see it? Because he said that he didn't see it. That's rubbish. I sent it to Celtic and through John Paul Taylor six years ago, something like that. So he's seen it all right. This was a bit I never really liked in the film. The lambs thing. <clears throat> People, it was like, you know, being fed information like lambs and stuff like that, or succulent lamb. It just felt, and every time I was on the tour, I felt like that bit went on forever, and I was kind of cringing a wee bit. Um, but but hey ho, you know, um, you wouldn't believe some of the stories. And this was kind of summing up. It was a kind of theatric structure. Um, and it was, you know, you would remember, like, see when you, especially back then, was, you know, started this sort of February 2014. She tried to dig up information on David Murray, because um, he was still seen as, you know, one of the most powerful men in Scotland and all this kind of stuff, and people just wouldn't go near it, especially journalists. I mean, oh my God, I mean, the amount of journalists try to speak to on the record, off the record, whatever, nah, wouldn't say a word about him, and so... I suppose there was a couple of pangs at the time where I thought, you know, what if this guy just decides, decides to try and destroy me? And he did try and get the book stopped. But once that was thrown out, he never, ever done anything that I know of. I mean, there was obviously loads of threats and stuff like that, but I don't know, I think it was anything anyway, to be quite honest. Um, and Osman reports and all that kind of thing, but um, it was just about destroying the narrative that had been built up around David Murray and providing a new narrative about that this guy was, you know, a total f chancer, basically, who, um, I thought this was really important to put in. Paying tribute to Fergus and paying tribute to Tommy Burns and Martin O'Neill and Neil Lennon. I love Tommy. And Martin as well. Love him. Never understand anybody criticise him. What he done for our club. Though. And that bit always got a massive cheer when Lenny just wouldn't take any McCoy's shite. I'll tell you an interesting story. They actually had a wee fight about that a year later in Glen Eagles Hotel. Uh, Derek McInnes was there. Craig Levine had held a manager's summit and uh, they ended up in a wee bit of a boxing man rolling about the floor. I think Lenny won that one as well. Martin Hutchison singing the now great song. And that's completely true. Remember these, all these um, schemes did was in support did was stable liquidation for a bit. And there he is getting knighted, of course, because the establishment look after their own. But you would ask one question, what was he knighted for? Services to business. Um, 
this was in Silverhouse in Edinburgh. Absolutely, and unfortunately, Celtic through the decision maker Peter Lawwell didn't take it anywhere, and we never ever got justice for this, and it's something that sticks in my throat beyond belief. As Joe says, everybody was cheated. We should have got a refund. And this was, of course, Stuart Regan's Armageddon theory, which, to be fair, he said he did say that there would be rioting in the streets if there was no Rangers, and, he, and that's right. You know, we know what they're like, you know, so that's why Sevco were created in this pretensia, the same club and all that, because, you know, they're no big enough to handle reality. And it's interesting they talk about tainted titles, ironically, um, that Celtic have won every trophy since uh, Sevco came into the league for the first time. So, you know, every argument they put up is just, it's easy to be blown away. This is at Fur Hall when we won the league 5-1. Um, or footage taken by me at the game, basically. Um, and then adapted brilliantly by Ja. You know, I would just send stuff down to him and... Um, or symbolic. That was the point to <coughs> put an asterisk on the entire David Murray era and then um, so that people would understand, you know, it wasn't just about EBT years and all that kind of thing. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, God, it seems like a lifetime ago. And um, I wanted to put my two sons on there just, you know, because I wanted to say, look, your father's actually done something for once. <laughs> um, that was in Dublin, that for you. And then Big Yompy there, we used to get a lot of people in. This was hard because the footage was, you know, not the best at some times. Um, so we had to muck about, well, Ja had to muck about with that. But we were all over the world. America and Australia and all that and everywhere. And there's the Highland boys there. And that was at Selic Park. That was a great day before a game. You just get all the people filming. Um, aye, it was great. So that was it. And um, hope you enjoyed that. We'll do another one soon. I hope this works. Uh, and I hope that um, you're having a great time. <laughs> Probably not, but um, thanks for... If you managed to get to the end of this, uh, you're a better man than me. Thank you. All women. Bye-bye.